Okay, this morning I'd like to uh, take a look at Psalm 13. Um, first of all, let's just read through the psalm and then we'll come back and we'll go through it step by step. It's not a very long psalm, only six verses. But we read, to start with, a little introduction to the chief musician, a psalm of David. And then we read... Let's go back to there. Verse 1. How long will you forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. So that's our uh, psalm. Not very long at all as they go. Do want to talk a little bit about this uh, introduction? We find these little notes there quite frequently. Um, sadly, some versions don't include these, but they're, they're sometimes quite instructive. First of all, we're told that this is to the chief musician. It's a petition and a prayer, if you like, that's be delivered to the highest-ranking musician in regard to leading the temple worship. You see, on its own, this petition clearly in the eyes of David was not befitting temple worship it needed to be given to the one who was in charge of the music and I think there's a, a, a thing for us here in that that which we bring must be of the highest quality when we come to the Lord when we worship him we should give him everything we've got it should be from the heart I believe our, our music our worship should be of the highest standard that we can offer and David here is doing just that he's offering this petition in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, David talks a little bit there about his attitude to our offering things to God. He says, this is, I'm sure you're familiar, this is the, the threshing floor incident after there's been this plague in the, the nation. And uh, David wants to purchase the, the threshing floor. The king said to Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which does cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David could have had all of it for nothing. Aruna would have quite happily given him everything. David was the king. But David says, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to give to God something that's cheap, something that doesn't cost me anything, has no value. He wanted that which he offered to God to have significance, to have worth, and to be something that, that cost him something. He wanted it to be a genuine gift, as it were. It's interesting as well that the word in Hebrew that we have there, the the chief musician bit, is if you like the superintendent over the temple service and the music, etc. And it just just got me thinking a little bit about actually who is it that can put our song to music? When we go to the Lord in prayer or with any petition, who is it that can actually take it to us before us before the throne? Of course, Christ alone is our chief. And I think there's something quite wonderful here because we only have the one advocate with the Father. And David, for whatever his reasons, wouldn't just give this offering of this psalm, these words that he's penned, straight to the Lord. It had to go through someone that would make it right and fitting for such. If you like, this is like a a petition being sent to Buckingham Palace. And it needs to be delivered by the most faithful of friend. And for us, when we go to the Lord, to our Father in heaven, we have to go through his son. We have to go through, if you like, our chief musician. There's a lot in there, I think, for us to to mull over. So we get into the the first verse. How long will you forget me, O Lord? Forever? Well, one of the reasons I wanted to pick this psalm today is because as of next Sunday morning, we're going to start a verse-by-verse study in the book of Job. For a long time I've loved the book of Job. It's one of those books that, to be honest, most of us don't get. And I place myself there. I just think it's fascinating. I think there's so much that 
it gives us not in the way necessarily of answers but somehow that book just challenges and changes the way we think and I think it will be really beneficial for us so we're going to start um, next Sunday going verse by verse through the book of Job we're not going to go on a particular pace we'll just as the Lord leads us we'll go through it in um, Ecclesiastes Solomon said that there's nothing new under the sun and I think it's interesting to realize that although we at times find ourselves in predicaments we're not alone it's not as if we're the only person to ever have been there we'll look at the scripture in a minute from uh, the book of Corinthians but you know everything that we experience is common to man you won't go through any trial or tribulation that somebody else hasn't already gone through and in, in a sense there is a comfort in that we do tend to see ourselves very often as being isolated whatever the, the situation we're experiencing we sometimes feel that we are alone that nobody understands us well that's not probably true and certainly we have a God who understands us so let's break this down first of all it starts with this how long now four times we find in this psalm uh, in the opening few verses um, David makes his plea how long and I'm sure we've all had enough experience in the uh, school of life to have been there at times I'm in a kind of how long at the moment because we want to move down here desperately. And it's like, Lord, how long? I was hoping we'd be here a month ago and uh, we're still waiting. The house, we've still, we've actually now got two people that want to buy the house as private sales, but neither of them have been able to sell theirs. So this week the house is going on the market as well. We're just going to try everything, you know. But Lord, it's a kind of how long? And sometimes we get frustrated because the Lord doesn't seem to act in our time frame. Now we have our own deadlines, our own schedule, and we expect the Lord to kind of keep up with us. Of course, the Lord's ways are far above ours and so much better. And ultimately, that how long question is answered by really the issue of, are we prepared to trust God, however long? But here, the psalmist is in a real predicament. I'll say the psalmist is David. He's in a real predicament. And he says, how long will you forget me, O Lord, forever? I think it's it's quite interesting to see the familiarity with which David here approaches the Lord. I mean, David doesn't have to come and, you know, introduce himself to God. Oh, by the way, do you remember me? I'm I'm the king in in Israel. There's a, a knowledge here that the Lord knows who David is. David just makes that assumption as he goes before the throne. You know, and the fact is, you know, that he's so easily granted an audience with the king. Well, that's proof enough that the king couldn't have forgotten him. See, there's no doubting here that God is God. David takes that for granted. And obviously, also, that the Lord is well acquainted with his current plight. Because he doesn't have to come immediately and explain all the details. You know, well, actually, this is the situation. This is what happened. He just goes straight to the Lord. How long will you forget me? Even in that statement, he's understanding that the Lord knows what the predicament is. We've got two things going on here. There's a a reality, and there's also that which is often perceived, and we find ourselves in exactly this situation. The reality of the situation is David is actually attempting to kind of stir God up. What he's really saying is, are you just going to sit there, Lord? You can see the situation. Are you just going to sit there and leave me in this situation? That's the reality. But there's also a, a perceived situation, and that is that the circumstances have led partially David here to the conclusion that God may have actually forgotten his servant. Hence he he asked this almost as a a kind of a a, a jibe at the Lord, but at the same time, there's that, has the Lord forgotten me? Element to what David's saying here. If we talk about the reality of the situation for just a moment, well, we know from Scripture... In Hebrews 13 verse 5, we know there that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promised to be with us until the end of the age. In Matthew 18 verse 13, we have that incredible parable about the lost sheep. And think about the rejoicing over just one that's found. You know, if you'd have lost something and you'd gone to that extremes to find it again it's not something you're then just suddenly going to forget and think of the extremes that god has gone through to purchase and to forgive and to bring you back into relationship could god ever forget you of course in psalm 
139. David says there, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. David acknowledges that actually the Lord will never leave him. You know, God can't forget us because he knows everything. It's not in God's nature to be able to forget any one of his servants. Of course, sometimes the Lord chooses not to remember, but that's a very different thing. The Lord chooses not to remember our iniquity, but the Lord can never forget. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, a very precious scripture but just states that underneath are the everlasting arms. We've got a God that loves us so much. He will never forget us. Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. God sees everything. We can't ever be forgotten because he always knows where we are, what we're doing. It was very interesting. At uh, work this week, we were having a. Um, every now and again, we have a communal lunch on a Friday, and everybody brings in something you know different. I do nachos, so I bring nachos in. And we were just sitting talking, and uh, one of the, in fact, a couple of the guys that were there were both Muslim, and so they were kind of asking, you know, is this halal meat or not? You know, can I eat it or not eat it? And uh, and my MD, who's um, well, I've got one of them we're working on. He's really opening up. The other one is um, he's not really sure what he is. Uh, one moment he's an atheist, next minute he's not. And he, so, um, but he was just having a little bit of a, a dig at the the Muslims and saying, you know, so you know, you can live the way you want to live, and yet your God is going to send you to hell if you eat the wrong piece of meat. And uh, I was sitting there quietly at this point. <laughs> And then they started talking about the Jews as well and the way that Jews are. And my MD was just simply you know, pointing out that, that how can you have a God that is going to make a decision upon your eternal destiny depending on whether you do this or do that. And then talking about the way that um, the Jews typically will try and not do work in a way that is actually getting the job done, you know, the way they are. Um, you know, the seventh year they'll hire out their field to someone else so they can carry on the labour, completely defeating the object, as if God doesn't see those things. And this is what my MD was commenting on. And, you know, of course nothing is hidden from God's sight. And, and it, it's, it's foolish actually to, to have this idea of a God that we can kind of do things that he doesn't see and we can get away with those things. Okay, uh, just to finish off that little story from the week from from friday uh, we got to the end of this conversation about the different types of food and i said you know because one of my this, this muslim chap said uh, of course he said you know if we don't know the food is is, is non-halal and we eat it then it's okay well, that's all right that's not a problem i said it's okay really good that you're so strict i said the only problem is you've got the wrong god and then we had a bit of a conversation about that the rest of my team were with me all laughed. they thought it was very funny they know exactly where i stand and uh, we have a, had a lot of friendly banter um, but anyway, nothing is hidden from God's sight. Hebrews 4 verse 13 tells us, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So going back to what David is asking in this psalm, he's saying, How long, Lord, will you forget me? Well, of course, the question doesn't even stand, because God will never forget us the problem is we end up in circumstances that make us think that that is the case you see if god cannot and will not forget us yet the circumstances suggest that he has we've got to come to the conclusion that the circumstances must be part of his permissive will the things that god is allowing now we'll look at this a lot as we go through the early chapters of the book of job job doesn't blame god but he does acknowledge that God is the one, in a sense, who is the cause of his trouble. And Job isn't necessarily saying that God is causing these things, but clearly Job is aware that God is sovereign. The fact that these things are happening means that God is allowing them. And it's the same with us in our lives. It may not be that God is directly causing the situation you find yourself in, but because God is sovereign... God is allowing. So then we have to deal with that question. Why? Why does God 
allow those things that we go through. Some of you right now may be in a predicament, a situation that you just don't understand and you feel like God has forgotten you. Well, the truth is, the reality is, God can never forget you. So then we've got to conclude that God's allowing it. So why is God allowing it? I think I've used this uh, example before. But imagine yourself there before the creation of the world. Before anything has happened and anything's been formed. And you have an audience with God. And God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create heavens and the earth. and I want you to write out a plan for your life. Whatever you'd like. Wherever you'd like to live. Think of family, of children, of all the things the world could offer. You know, you write out whatever you want for your life. And you go away and you spend a few days just, just writing this down. And you look at that and you think, yep, that's pretty good. Sunseeker in Pearl Harbor, liking it. You know? And then you go back to the Lord and you say, there you go. That's my plan. That's what I want for my life. That's my perfect dream life. And God says, okay, well, that's my plan. Choose one. Of course, I think most of us would be honest enough to say actually we're going to go for God's one because we don't know everything we don't know the end from the beginning but he does and whatever God has put in that plan however hard that may be however many trials we may experience ultimately it's the plan of a God who is loving and kind and merciful and gracious we may not understand why God would allow those things there's a fantastic illustration of a butterfly this uh, boy comes along and he sees this butterfly still in the chrysalis trying to escape and he sees it struggling and struggling and he watches it for over half an hour and it doesn't seem to be making any progress and eventually the boy thinks I've got to help this poor little creature so he just snips the bit of the cocoon and the butterfly then can get out and he's waiting and waiting and then nothing happens you see the, the squeezing and the pushing of the butterfly out of that cocoon would have forced all the fluid into its wings and allowed it to fly But by taking away that struggle, that butterfly would never ever become what it was supposed to be. And it's the same with us. The Lord allows us to go through difficult situations and struggles because he sees what we don't see. He sees the end from the beginning. There's a great song by Stephen Curtis Chapman that talks about the fact that we can only see a part of the picture he's painting. You know, if you've seen an artist start to paint a picture... And you think, what is, what is that? What's it going to be? And they do a few brush strokes here and a few more there, and still doesn't look, you know, not much like any sense. All of a sudden, it starts to take a bit of form, and then suddenly, those little marks that were put on there suddenly become something integral to the overall picture. Well, that's what our lives are like before God, and God is painting this wonderful picture, and we can't see it all yet. We don't know, but He does. In First Corinthians ten. Verse 13, this is the verse I referred to a moment ago. It says, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And don't think that trials and difficulties are not temptations. Sometimes we're guilty of putting temptations into things that we would classify clearly as sin. But of course, if we're in a difficult situation, well, that's just as as much a temptation because it's a temptation to doubt that God is in control. Any temptation, in a sense, is dethroning God and putting ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. But God says he'll never allow us to be tempted beyond the point that he knows that we're able. In Romans 8, 28, we know that scripture so well, don't we? All things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to his purpose. But we don't often read on to see the, the whole picture of that. Because it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified you see there's a process involved in as uh, the writer to the hebrews puts it bringing sons unto glory see sanctification is his work in us to make us what he wants us to be but nowhere does god promise that that molding and shaping are going to be painless 
See, the problem is for all of us that sin has so distorted our minds and our outlook that it actually takes surgery to put us back straight again. And sometimes that can be painful. As I mentioned, Amita's got to go in for surgery soon. She's got this developmental displacement of the hip, as they refer to it. And she's got to have surgery. If it carries on growing the way it's growing, it's going to cause all sorts of problems later in life. So we need to go at this with a knife and correct the problem. And then she'll be in a, a cast around about three months. She's not going to enjoy it necessarily. But in the future, looking back, she'll be glad. And it's the same with us. You know, we get so accustomed to the way we think should be, we think things should be. And sometimes it takes us being operated on by the master surgeon. And it may be painful at the time. It may be uncomfortable. We may go through months where we feel restricted and not able to do what we want to do. But of course, he knows what the future will bring. I did read this quote once before, but it's so fitting and so good that I want to read it again. It's by Charles Spurgeon. Just building on the verse from Zechariah 6.13, which says, He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. Referring to the Messiah. Spurgeon says, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple, and he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection, his omnipotent grace, and his infallible truthfulness. But as it was in Solomon's temple, so in this... The materials need making ready. There are the cedars of Lebanon, but they are not framed for the building. They are not cut down and shaped and made into those planks of cedar whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the Lord's house in paradise. There are also the rough stones still in the quarry. They must be hewn, thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven, apart from the hand of Jesus, who fashions our hearts aright. As in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house, because all was brought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy. So it is with the temple which Jesus builds. The making ready is all done on earth. Philippians 1, 6 tells us that we can be confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Has God forgotten you? No. Because he's promised that he started something and he's not going to let it go to ruin. Isaiah 49, a great passage. It says, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. <laughs> God's response. Can a woman forget her suckling child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? He says, Yea, they may forget, yet will not I forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. You know, the nail prints in his hands will never allow him to forget you. So we've talked a little bit about the reality of the situation. The Lord will never and can never forget us. But what about the perceived situation that we find ourselves in, the way that sometimes it feels to us? You know, if God will never leave us or forsake us, does he ever allow circumstances that would cause us to feel that he has? Is that right? Well, actually, yes. What about the storm on the sea? In Mark 6, verse 48, we read there, and he saw them toiling and rowing. Notice, he saw them. God observed. Jesus was watching. He saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by him. Yet it goes on, and the Lord joins them in the boat, and so on. The storm was real. The predicament they were in was a very real situation. And he leaves it until the fourth watch of the night. The Lord could have gone in much sooner, but no, he leaves them. You know, that's almost dawn. They have to say, don't they, it's darkest before the dawn. So often that's the way it is when we go through trials. And it's interesting to note that God, if you like, hit them in their strong suit. You know, the Lord takes something that they're very good at. They were fishermen. They knew how to deal with this. They didn't need anybody's help. 
suddenly they're out of their depth and the Lord exposes their weakness and the Lord will allow us sometimes to fall in an area where we think we are are okay we've got it all sorted to if you like shatter our independence and cause us to seek him so the Lord does allow us sometimes to go through situations where it seems like he's forgotten but we must never lose sight of the reality that he can never forget So how long will you forget me, O Lord, forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is one of those verses that's easy to read over, but the implication of this is huge. You see, not only does God not seem to be answering, but God appears to have turned his face away. Now, just in the same way that God will never forget us, so God will never turn his face away from us. There's nothing more frightening than the prospect of God turning his face away. And I know at times it may seem as if God is turning his face away. And we'll talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that can bring those circumstances about in a moment. But there's going to come a time when the Lord's face will be turned away. And that will be for those that enter eternity without Jesus. And I don't think people yet have really understood, certainly the majority of people probably in the church and certainly those in the world who mark and joke and laugh about hell. Oh, my friends will be there. It'll be great. We're going to have a party. No. The Bible talks a lot about hell, the eternal place. We're not talking about Hades, Sheol, the pit, also referred to as hell. But there's, you mustn't get confused in the Bible. There's a, a holding room waiting for the judgment. But then there is ultimately the lake of fire, to give it its probably more accurate description, but also referred to by Jesus himself as hell, or Gehenna, this place of this eternal fire. And I don't think we understand quite how horrible that will be when suddenly the Lord's face is turned away, and there is no more of his presence. In um, Psalm 139, it talks about the fact that even in Hades now, God's presence can be felt. But ultimately, in the lake of fire, God's presence will not be there. And we can't imagine what it will be like suddenly to be without the presence of our creator. Marla hates being away from mummy and daddy. The other day, she was downstairs and she had one of her children's programs on and her toys were out. And uh, Joy and I were upstairs just cleaning and doing some bits and pieces and packing bits. All of a sudden, there's these little feet behind us. I just looked at Joy and she looked at me and we just smiled and we said, all right, Marla? She said, yeah. So everything all right downstairs? Yeah. So why did you come up? Um, just wanted to see you. She hates being on her own. She knew we were upstairs. We just, you know, a few yards away. She could hear us making noise. It wasn't if we'd left the place. But she hates being on her own. You know, that's a child with a parent. What will it be like for people who are suddenly separated from their creator? I can't begin to imagine the horror and knowing that that is an eternal situation that will never be revoked. People joke about hell. They have no idea. The real horror of hell is that the presence of a wonderful creator, God, will suddenly be removed from us or from those that are there. I say from us. I hope it's not any of us. Interestingly, in Matthew 27, verse 46, as Jesus is on the cross... He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe Jesus is the only person to date that knows that experience on account of our sin. You see, Matthew 5 verse 45 says that he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We know that even wicked and evil people in this world still benefit from the many blessings. You know, we all get to enjoy a sunny day. Moses, though, prays that prayer in Numbers Numbers chapter 6 that we're all very familiar with. The Lord bless thee, keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee, be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. There is a real peace when you're in his presence, when his face is toward you. To be in a position as... David's saying here, how long will you hide your face from me? To be in that situation is a horrible place to be. Of course, the Lord's face until that time, ultimately, will never be turned away completely from anybody. But sometimes it does indeed seem that the Lord is hiding his face from us. 
Spurgeon, in his commentary on Psalms, to this verse, just answers, asks these three questions. Why at all? Why does God ever need to hide his face from us, or apparently so? And Why from me, and why so long? Well, there's a variety of reasons, possibly, that have brought the situation to be as it is. It could have been brought about by his sin. David himself talks much about his own sin. And Hebrews 12.6 does say that the Lord will chasten those whom he loves. In Psalm 25.11, we read there, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. David was under no illusion that he was a great sinner. He just knew, in the words of John Newton, that he had a greater saviour. Psalm 32, verse 5, David said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David knew that he was a sinner, and it could have been on account of his sin that he felt he was in his predicament. And sometimes, indeed, that is a reason why the Lord does seem to hide his face from us for a season. Psalm 40, he says there, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. And then he says, mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt the weight of sin in your own life just almost stops you from going to the Lord? It just seems to be a barrier. Again, that's one of those moments where it feels as if the Lord has turned his face away and we've lost that right of access. Of course, that's what the devil would love us to have us think. He says, they are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. I just want to read this to you. This was um, drawn actually from Spurgeon's commentary, and he quotes uh, Samuel Rutherford. He says this, If I knew that the beloved were only gone away for trial and further humiliation and not smoked out of the house with new provocations, I would forgive desertions and hold my peace in his absence. But Christ's brought absence that I have brought with my sin is two running boils at once, one upon each side, and what side then can I lie on? Let me unpack, I think, what he's trying to say here. As Jesus effectively goes out to be crucified, it's bad enough that our Saviour was going off to be crucified, but the fact that he was going for us on account of our sin, as he says, it's like two running boils. You know, it's bad enough for us sometimes that the Lord seems to be distant from us. The Lord seems to have hidden his face from us. But when it's on account of our own sin, as he says, it's like two running boils and what side can we lie on how can we get rest in that situation the incredible thing of course is that Jesus said if we confess our sin he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness it's one of the most amazing verses in the Bible that he will allow us access to the throne simply by our repenting Psalm 66.18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Quite simply, God is a holy God. You know, we can't approach God with sin in our hearts. There's various examples of people trying to approach God in their own way or by their own efforts and not through sacrifice, through the death of an innocent substitute, i.e. ultimately through Christ. Cain, of course, tries to get to God by the sacrifice he offers himself. Nadab and Abihu try to offer in Leviticus 10 this, this fire that they've manufactured. Of course, the worship to God could only come from that which had been kindled by God originally. And they both end up losing their lives. You know, if we approach God, it can only be one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. So sometimes our sin can be that which will cause us to feel as if the Lord has turned his face from us. Whether it's through sin, whether it's through other circumstances, whether it's simply because the Lord is molding and shaping us, we all end up in this situation too. Verse 2. It's not a long psalm, isn't it? Verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? We're made up of body, soul and spirit. Soul is who we are really comprising of our heart and our mind, our heart, the emotional part, our mind, the intellectual part. That's why we have the law and the prophets, the law to convert the heart, as it says in Psalm 19, and the prophets, the more sure word of prophecy that Peter talks about, 
to convince us intellectually. But our soul is who we are. And if David's basically saying here, you know, because he's failed to apply the shield of faith to the how long will you forget me and to the how long will you hide your face from me, he now ends up trying to solve the problem himself. We've been there. We've done it. And very often we've ended up in all sorts of predicaments because of it. And as a result of it, having sorrow in my heart daily. The moment we try and solve our problems, we only make them worse. See, what's happened, of course, is that here the absence of a heavenly counsellor causes us to seek counsel elsewhere and, sadly, we go to ourself. You know, the first two how longs, as I said, have not been met by faith, but by reverting to oneself to try and solve the problems. Spurgeon says, there is in the original the idea of laying up counsels in his heart as if his devices have become innumerable but unavailing. Try so many things to try and solve the problem, to try and get out of the situation he's in. Nothing's helped him. As I say, these things will just produce sorrow. If we try and solve our problems, if we try and resolve our predicament because there's a shortcut that we perceive, it won't help us. We can look at numerous examples in Scripture. Abraham, for one, has been waiting for an heir. In Genesis 15, he asks God the question about what's going to happen. God gives him a very clear answer. But then what happens when we get to Genesis 16? Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing, I pray thee, Go in unto my maid, that it may be sorry, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Wouldn't it be great if Abraham had said at that point, No, Sarah, the Lord has promised that we will have a child. But no, like we do, that how long had gone on too long, we've got to do something here, we've got to solve the problem. King Saul waiting at Mishmash. I'm not sure whether that's where the root of that word comes from, actually, but this place, Mishmash, recorded in 1 Samuel, Saul's waiting for Samuel to arrive to do the sacrifice before they enter into this battle, and Samuel's late getting there. It's one of those how-longs. Saul says, got to do something about this. Effectively, he ends up forfeiting his right to the kingdom. And it may seem a trivial matter if you read it through and think, well, God's being a bit harsh there. But you need to understand that that sacrifice was all about atonement. You can't play around with those things. There's a situation in the New Testament with Paul's shipwreck, recorded in Acts 27. Paul's actually saying we should wait. Everyone else is saying, no, 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 not waiting any longer. We're going to go. Enough of that how long, we're going to move forward. And they don't, don't take Paul's advice and they end up all being shipwrecked as a result. And I think that's what will happen to us if we don't learn to trust and wait on the Lord. We'll all be in those how-longs. If we're not there at the moment, through the course of this year, we'll find ourselves there at different times. We've got to learn to trust and to wait and be patient. The rest of the verse carries on. It says, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So this now is the fourth and final how-long, and possibly the, the kind of the crux of the problem, because I just detect here a bit of pride. But you see... There's that, Lord, you've forgotten me. Lord, it feels you've hidden your face. And I'm trying to solve my problems myself and nothing's working. And hang on a minute. My enemy is now exalting over me. Clearly there's a justice problem here. That shouldn't be the case. We should be above our enemies and so on. And I think there's a pride element that starts to creep in. And so we start to want this resolved because we don't feel we should be in this position. So often we end up being more concerned about our own name, our own reputation than about his name. Really, it's how long shall I be abased and my enemy exalted? There's a kind of a personal challenge, I think, at this level as well. And this is where we find, when we get to this point in the book of Job, um, Satan, before the Lord, after the first challenge doesn't work, goes back and appeals that he can, a little bit bit more uh, harsh on Job, and says to God, but put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan's, Logic here is, of course, okay, so he's lost all these things, fine, but you've not really touched him, and we can all deal with that. But you start to touch him, and that human element of pride and everything else is going to kick in, and he's going to rebel against you, he's going to do all these things. And Job's response says, Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil 
And we're told, in all this, did not Job sin with his lips? Job is an incredible character. I'm sure we're going to be blessed by looking at his life over the coming weeks and months. But I do think we get to this situation that when it gets personal, we start to get a little bit more agitated. But then we get to verse 3. And this really, I think, is the low point now. We've gone through the, does, God doesn't seem to be listening, he's turned his face away, I've tried to resolve it myself, it hasn't worked, even my enemies are laughing at me now, and that's making me very unhappy. But he says, consider and hear me, O Lord my God, lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. There's an appeal to God's justice here. It's that consider, Lord, weigh this up. Look at the situation. Is this right? Is this just? And hear me. Of course, God is the only one that David could turn to. And notice that he says, O Lord, my God. I think the initial paddy, if you like, if we can use that expression that David was going through here, has kind of given way to something more serious. Because as he goes on to say here, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He realized this isn't just about him being uncomfortable or unhappy or whatever in the circumstances. It's not just about the fact that he was being mocked. There's something now much bigger. And actually everything else pales into insignificance at this point. David appeals for mercy, as I said, from his God. And it's one of those, if God doesn't come through, there's no tomorrow. And I think this is something we see so often in Scripture. Moses at the Red Sea. Gideon about to go out into battle. Joshua for Jericho. Unless God comes through, there's no tomorrow. And God so often brings us to this point where we forget about our own concerns about ourselves, forget about what the enemy thinks about us. It's all about, Lord, help, save me. And I think when we get to this point and we give up on ourselves, we surrender completely, knowing that we cannot do anything. I think it's then the Lord moves and works. He says, in conclusion of this first section, he says, Lest my eyes say I have prevailed, sorry, lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. You know, it's trying enough to be in the situation, but that the gloating of my enemies to compound the agony. We've been there. We've been in situations where it just seems like this in our own life, the circumstances. So, it seems firstly God was not answering him. Then he seems to have fallen out of fellowship with God. And we know what that's like. We've been there. That had led him to taking counsel in his own soul. The humility of his enemies triumphing over him. And this now seems a greater trouble. Because we then have this life and death issue. Pride no longer is a problem. So appeal finally is made to the only one who can really help. Jonah is actually a very good example of this type of downward spiral. We find that he goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the bottom part of the boat. Then he goes down to the bottom of the ocean. Finally, he cries out. And sometimes, when we're in these situations, that how long? As long as it takes. As long as it takes for us to suddenly realize, actually, this isn't about me. This is about God. It's about getting my eyes on him. quote from a contemporary of Spurgeon's, William uh, Gurnall, says, How often do we find the holy prophet, when he first kneels down to pray, full of fears and doubts, who, before he and the duty part, that's the duty of praying, grows into a sweet familiarity with God and repose in his own spirit. He begins his prayer as if he thought God would never give him a kind look more. But by the time he had exercised himself a little in his duty... His distemper wears off, the mists scatter, and his faith breaks out as the sun in its strength. This psalm, six verses of it, plus that little introduction, such a short psalm, but it encompasses so much of what we experience in life. And it amazes me how close so often the answers are. And as William Gurnall here points out, getting in that place where we get on our knees before God where we stop trying to seek an answer to solve the problem, but we start going to God himself. And everything changes. 
And time and time through scripture we see these things. So then we get to verse 5. But I have trusted. David has got to that low point. He's cried out to God. He's God, you know, oh Lord, my God. He's finally got there. And then he says, but I have trusted in thy mercy. There's a great but, if you like, that's recorded for us in the book of Ephesians. It talks about the kind of people we were, lost without God, reprobates and so on. But God in his mercy. That's another one of those massive turning points. And here for us, but I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Very much like Job. You know, I'm not going to look at the circumstances because I'm above the circumstances. We're to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's just an incredible change. And notice that it's the past tense as well. But I have trusted. Not I will trust. He's reminding himself of the things that he's experienced. And it's good for us to look down the road from where we've come. And see what the Lord has done. I heard somebody once say, you know, I'm not where I want to be. But I thank God that I'm not where I used to be. And I think we can all echo that. As we look in our lives, we may not be where we want to be. We might be in a really difficult situation. But praise God, we're not where we used to be. One of um, the people that Spurgeon was quoting um, in his commentary was talking about the fact, you know, even if these trials take us one half step closer to God, well, then they're worth it. You know, when we consider Job, uh, consider God, as we see in the book of Job, all else is brought to nothing. When we get our eyes on him, and verse 6 says, I will sing unto the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the man who starts by feeling that the Lord has forgotten him. The Lord's turned his face away, resorting to his own self to solve his problems. Now, he's been reminded, as he's come before the Lord, of the nature of God. We don't even have any record here that God says anything to him. It's one of those, you've probably seen examples, you get sometimes, you know, in plays or TV things, where somebody goes to talk to somebody, and they talk to them, you know, about the problem, the other person says not a word, and they go away going, thanks for that, that really helped. And that's a bit like we are sometimes. We need to go to God and we need to get on our knees before him. And all of a sudden we start to think, hang on, who is this God I serve anyway? This is the God who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, forever. David remembers that which God has done for him in the past. But I have trusted in thy mercy. Has God ever let you down? No, not once. It says, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation and I will sing this sadness this gloominess has turned into song but I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me again thinking of the blessings that God has given us as we go on next week and start to look into the book of Job we'll talk about some of those blessings that surround our lives and some of them are not eternal they're things for the here and now but some of those things are eternal. But God has dealt bountifully with us. There was a story I read of some people that, going back a few hundred years, were put in prison. The nature of their crime was uh, questionable anyway. But while they were there, they were singing praises to the Lord. And the jailer came and spoke to them and said, Why are you happy? You're supposed to be miserable. You're in prison. And I said, the conditions are horrible, it's true. But we're doing that which we have been called to do, rejoice all the time in all situations. So we're praising God. And they said, we'd rather be in a situation where we're able to praise God than to live in a palace. And, you know, sometimes the Lord may find us or may allow us to feel that we're in a prison. But we need to rejoice in the Lord always to praise him to get on our knees before him just to fellowship with him notice it's God's mercy 
It's God's salvation. That concludes the psalm. And in concluding this morning from Isaiah 26 verse 3. God says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I think that's where we're going. I really feel that's where the Lord would have us move as a fellowship. Just learning to trust. Learning to keep our mind stayed on him. Regardless of the circumstances. You see, the funny thing is, in that psalm, we're not given any indication that the circumstances were any different at the end than at the beginning. What a change was David's eyesight, if you like, his perception, that which he was looking at. He started by looking at the problem, he ends up by looking at God. So a song I remember from years ago by a chap called Scott Wesley Brown. And it simply, the, the, the title was, When Answers Aren't Enough, There's Jesus. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing as we go through the book of Job. Not necessarily expecting to get lots of answers, but looking to see more of him. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, forever. The Lord, you will never forget us, that we are engraved upon the palms of your hands, very literally. And Father, whatever the situation we're currently in, you know. And Lord, you just want us to seek you. Father, if we're in a good place at the moment, everything seems to be well, the sun is shining, then Lord, as and when we approach that next valley, may we do so with our eyes firmly fixed on you. Lord, just help us as we see with David there to get our eyes off the situation and onto you. Because Lord, we have that incredible promise that you will keep him, her, you'll keep us in perfect peace if our minds are stayed on you. So by your grace, Lord, we ask that you do this in our lives. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.